Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the law offices of Dorsey & Whitney here in Manhattan. As this is a live show, I believe this is where you're supposed to make some noise, as they say so. The Cynical Podcast is produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day through our terrific free email newsletter, curated, of course, by this fellow up here with me, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Woo! <laughs> and, of course, through our handy smartphone app at, or at our website, subchina.com. Uh, we've got more and more fresh reporting on China, timely and relevant videos. We've got quizzes. We've got opinion and analysis pieces and much more. All about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, joined by a man who has reshaped my world, mostly but not entirely for the better. Mr. Jimmy, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, how are you? <laughs> fair is fair. Now, I think you were right back in, uh, what was it, like 2013 or 2014, when you made a certain prediction that a certain Mr. Xi Jinping would seek to remain in power after his allotted two terms. His allotted two terms, of course, are not yet up, but... Already, he's already signaling that he's going to stay in power. So, congratulations, Jeremy. I owe you, you uh, maybe. <laughs> congratulations? Maybe? Should I congratulate you? Should anyone be You should be eating some crow, but yeah, no, it's yeah, fine. I'll, I'll eat some wuji, or wuji in, in place of crow. I'll have some wuji tongue or something like that. Uh, anyway, uh, Jeremy, tell us all about SubChina Access. Just a quick plug uh, for SubChina Access. We have launched a me- membership program. Uh, you can join for the rock bottom price of 888 a month or you can pay $88 for a whole year. You get one, uh, currently one newsletter a week that's only available to subscribers and premium content and access to our Slack instant messaging channel. And this week we're going to do our first uh, chat with a guest, something like an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, but designed for uh, people who can write in full sentences. So that's <laughs> subtrain access. And uh, I uh, hope all of you uh, will uh, check it out. And if you're not members, please sign on. Kind you also get an early ad-free version of this podcast. Well, that's that right? true. And discounts on our, our, uh, our many live shows and our events. Anyway, uh, we were talking about the proposed changes that we all read about over the weekend to the Constitution, which, of course, would, if they are, in fact, ratified, uh, remove the two-year term limit that's been in place since the 1990s uh, for the Chinese presidency. Uh, It looks like prospects for rule of law in China have slipped uh, further away still than they already have. So today we're going to look at one setting where ordinary Chinese either as plaintiffs or as defendants are apt to actually come into direct contact with the Chinese legal system. And that, of course, is in China's courtrooms, in tort cases. And it's at this level where it's possible, I think, to identify some of the fundamental impediments to rule of law in China and how Chinese courts seem, at least in my reading, to prioritize social harmony 
over the actual law. So we are delighted to be here at Dorsey and Whitney uh, and to introduce our guests, one of whom is actually also our host here, Jeffrey Sant. Uh, Jeffrey is a law firm partner here at Dorsey and Whitney, specializing in legal issues involving China. Uh, Jeffrey was named a young Sinologist by China's Ministry of Culture, and you may know him as the guy who wrote a couple of very widely read pieces published in Slate a few years back about the phenomena related to law in China that seems too bizarre to be true, and uh, some of them really are true, and we're going to be discussing those (laughs) things today. (laughs) It's all true. (laughs) Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, and welcome to My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And the handsome gentleman immediately to my right is uh, one of the legends in the field of Chinese law, Ben Liebman. Ben is Robert L. Leaf Professor of Law and the director of the Center for Chinese Legal Studies at Columbia University. Uh, ben has a book that is not coming out soon, as it turns out, <laughs> uh, but uh, a chapter of which we've just read, uh, which focuses on tort law, uh, specifically related to traffic accidents as advertised. Uh, and as you'll hear soon, it reveals a lot about the role of courts in Chinese society and raises a lot of questions about the future of the rule of law in China. As I've said, Ben, a very warm welcome to Cynical. You're long overdue. Great. Thank you. To kick off, um, I've spent a lot of time driving around in China, and <laughs> I can attest that it can be very frightening. I have seen more than my fair share of dead bodies and horrible, grisly accidents. Um, can either of you give us a sense of how frequent traffic accidents in China are, uh, how frequent f- fatalities in those accidents are, and how, how does this compare to other countries, uh, especially in terms of per mile or, or per driver incidents? So I can't give you a per mile uh, figure. I can say that there are a lot of accidents and a lot of deaths. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about this area, like so many areas involving statistics in China, is that there don't seem to be very clear statistics. So estimates of the number of people who die every year range from 50 or 60,000 to well over 100,000, even 200,000, depending on who you ask. I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people getting injured and killed on China's roads. And as the use of motorcycles and cars has increased over the last few years, uh, we've seen a lot more accidents and a lot more injuries and a lot more deaths. I I didn't prepare statistics on the number of uh, traffic accidents uh, that were happening, but I did prepare statistics on the rate at which people are killed in accidents in China compared to in the U.S. So in the U.S., in uh, the most recent year I came up with, uh, there were 32,000 deaths. Um, and the ratio was uh, 70 injuries to one death. And according to Xinhua News Agency, this is what I was able to find in China, the ratio of traffic injuries to deaths in China is only 4 to 1. So it's 70 to 1 versus 4 to 1. Now, that may be a reporting issue where people who are injured are not necessarily reporting it, uh, but it could also be other reasons. Um, like people example. running over people who they hit. <laughs> well, I think it's more lack of uh, use of seatbelts, uh, more drunk driving, more reckless driving. I think those are okay, more so likely that, that the reasons. Okay, so what about accidents? I mean, so with the caveat that I am very sensitive to certain stereotypes about Asian drivers, <laughs> uh, let me ask this. Uh, why are there so many accidents and so many fatalities? I mean, is it is it just that most drivers are still pretty new? I mean, I remember reading that something like 50% of drivers on China's roads have had their licenses for less than one year. Uh, or is it the maintenance of roads? Is it uh, the maintenance of vehicles? What, 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 is the, what are some of the reasons? Well, personally, I think it's just a different style of driving. Um, if you are in 
uh, China or, or in, in that area. Uh, the, the idea is to be aggressive, to keep moving forward, to not stop for uh, anything. In the U.S., it's very different. And, uh, you know, uh, I, when I first was driving in Taiwan, for example, um, for a while, I decided that I was going to actually make myself follow the traffic laws and see what happened. And so I would stop at a red light, even if there's no traffic coming the other way. And the guys behind me would honk their horns. They'd get furious. They'd drive around me, give me the finger. They're like, why don't you drive through the light? There's no traffic coming. Can you not see that? Uh, Goddamn white drivers. <laughs> uh, if you ask any Beijing taxi driver, surely the answer is it's all the pedestrians' fault, right? I mean, that's what they right, would say. Of course, of course is, yeah. uh, I will say, I, having read hundreds and hundreds of these cases, I have uh, decided I'm never going to drive in China. <laughs> Actually... But I think you got rapid development of roads. You know, things are, a lot of the places I've done my work, you're seeing the just the number of roads and vehicles explode in, in a tiny amount of time. And right. so it's not surprising you've got a lot of inexperienced drivers and pedestrians and uh, everything else that, that culminates in a lot of accidents. I should say in rural China also, there's a lot of unregulated vehicles, right? There are a lot of yeah. people out there driving you know, motorcycles that don't have licenses, Farm vehicles without licenses, uh, all of the above, and so again, like that's a that's a pretty bad combination. Rapid development of of an economy, lots of new vehicles, lots of people don't know exactly how to drive. Uh, you're going to get accidents. In the first few times I came to China, uh, I would have a professional driver there, and they would always tell me, uh, "I don't worry, I've been driving for six years." I'm like. Now I'm worried. I, I wasn't before you told me that. The fact yeah. that you feel the need to tell me that makes me very nervous. And it's only six years. Yeah. It's not 25, yeah. But what happens, can you walk us through either view, what happens when you get into a car accident in China? What are drivers required to do by the law? What do cops do? What do insurance companies do? And what if I'm injured and I decide to bring a tort claim? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question because... I think it depends on the nature of the accident and the severity of the injuries. In a very basic uh, dispute, I, you know, a sort of two cars fender bender, what usually happens is people work it out on the side of the road and cash changes hand immediately, or maybe now you just transfer it via uh, WeChat. WeChat, right? <laughs> so it's a friend of mine was telling me this a couple of weeks ago, actually, that he was in an accident. He just transferred money via WeChat to make the person go away. Uh, but uh, and then the, the next stage might be the involvement of the police. And again, it's very common in, in cases or accidents where there are not severe injuries for the police to sort of supervise a mediation on the side of the road and to suggest that the parties work it out. The police have a lot of influence when this comes up because they can seize your vehicle if you don't mediate and resolve it right there. And so faced with the option of maybe paying over some money under the guidance of the police, or having your vehicle impounded as evidence, a lot of people will, will opt to settle it. But then it gets more formal, and you can go into formal mediation with the police. Uh, the police can issue, will generally in an accident, especially one with injuries, issue an accident report. Uh, the accident report can be challenged, but it's difficult to, to do so. But the accident report issued by the police is extraordinarily important because if a case actually gets to the courts, uh, then the courts will almost always entirely defer to the police determination of liability made either on the side of the road or shortly thereafter by the police. So it's only a subset of cases that wind up in court, but uh, and those are the cases that tend to have more severe injuries, more severe 
financial harm. So, uh, so Ben, how did you decide to look at uh, traffic-related tort claims as something that might illuminate some fundamental aspect of, of Chinese jurisprudence? I mean, did, did you have an idea of what you were going to find even before you set out to systematically uh, you know, comb through the court records of this court in a uh, county in Hubei? So I didn't know what I was going to find, uh, but I, I came into this with the thought that if you really want to understand how ordinary people experience law in China, then you need to look at when things go wrong for them. And for a lot of people, when things go wrong, it's when they suffer personal injuries due to someone else's negligence. It's sort of a fundamental way of asking the question of can the legal system provide redress to people who've been harmed? And so that's why I came into it. And you know, the idea was just to try and get a sense of what a tort docket looked at. And I previously done some work on medical malpractice litigation and related rioting. And uh, you know, traffic accidents seem to be like the next step for trying to understand what happens to people when they get injured. Can the courts give them some redress? Ben, can you tell us about the data sets that you looked at? Uh, I believe one was something like 336 tort cases in one Hubei County court, and 280 of them were traffic. Uh, another with 309 cases from another Hubei County. Tell us about that data. Yeah, and so the the cases we're looking at uh, in this work are going back a few years, basically 2009 to 2012, 2013. It's a data set that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it's before the emergence of big data in China's courts. So over the last few years, we've seen, I don't know, like 50 million cases put online by China's courts. But in the time frame I was looking at, this wasn't possible. So you really had to go through the courts to get the cases. And working with the courts, we got a data set that we think is most, maybe not all, of the personal injury cases in these two courts. And then we sat down and read them and, and really trying to ask the question of if you just look at an entire tort docket from a court or two courts, what are you going to see? What are the phenomena that appear? And to what degree are people succeeding when they bring these cases? So were these rural? Were they urban? This is mostly rural. Both counties okay, are predominantly rural in two different places in Hubei. And, and how well do you think the conclusions that you drew travel? I mean, how, how applicable do you think this is to first-tier cities or to more developed coastal provinces? I mean, this is rural Hubei, right? So I don't make any claim that any place I study is representative of all of China. China is obviously a big right, place. Right. And, you know, the, the when I present this paper in China, people often say, we well, should compare it to this place and that county in Beijing. And my response is, I'd love to see more people doing this type of research. Uh, I think, I personally think that, I mean, one of the reasons I, that it does have some salience for other places, Hubei is middle to lower income. Uh, and I think this phenomenon of ordinary people getting injured and going to court is fairly widespread. And you know, I think that the courts where we, we were looking at are pretty representative in terms of their overall quality. I actually think they're pretty competent in what they're doing. So I, I, you know, I don't claim that this one county speaks for all of China, but I do think uh, the trends we're seeing here are are similar to those you'd see elsewhere in China, especially in this time period. Well, you got fifty million of them online now. Just, yeah, so you now need you need a program an AI algorithm, and you're you're all you're exactly. Actually, now you just they just program the AI algorithm, and they just decide the cases with the algorithm. But, uh, <laughs> that's where we're going. But that's maybe that's another. If podcast. they could commit the c- crimes first, then we could they uh, get rid of the going citizens involved in completely. Exactly. So. <laughs> Ben, the thrust of your work, as I understand it, is to suggest that the role of courts in China in tort cases is as much about social stability maintenance, uh, the Chinese government's euphemism for keeping everybody in order, as it is about actually discovering the real truth uh, in the matter. And you note that plaintiffs nearly always receive some compensation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so maybe just two points on this. One is I would say it's social stability maintenance 
combined with some appeal to some concept of justice, where that concept of justice may not always be the same as what the legal rules are. So one of the things you see in these cases is not just plaintiffs winning in all these cases, but the courts in cases in which the law is very clear, not following the law, not because of corruption, not because of somebody interfering with the case, but because they think that justice demands another outcome. So, and, and I, think that's, that, so I think that's sort of the, the first uh, very clear trend in these cases. The other thing I'll say is I think you see courts trying just to get cases over with. And, uh, you know, they just want to make these disputes go away. And so they're going to give out, order someone to pay out money, usually order a party with deep pockets to pay out money with the goal of making the cases go away, making the litigants receive something so that they're appeased uh, by by the decision of the court. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that they make the deep-pocketed, uh, whether it's uh, the, the generally it's going to be the defendant, of course, a deep-pocketed defendant or one of the parties it's named is going to end up paying. This seems to be the sort of particularism here. Uh, there, there isn't a rule applied. It, they look at the means of, of the individuals involved in the case and they assess accordingly. Um, and I'll just say sometimes like an, an uninsured guy, right? Absolutely. And right. So, sometimes they'll they'll bring in new defendants. I mean, sometimes they'll bring in the local government to make them pay if the <laughs> defendant isn't insured. So the, the you know the prototypical case where this happens is you've got a defendant who's been found liable and is uninsured, and the question is who are you going to make pay because the defendant doesn't have any assets, and so they'll go find somebody. In some cases, that'll be. Uh, you know, the second truck that showed up at the scene that wasn't actually involved in the original accident. The guy who tried to help. <laughs> uh, the guy tried to, well, you know, the one couple of cases you have are cases where a second vehicle runs over the dead body. And so they make the, you know, it's harm to the body. Uh, there's a lot of respect for the body in these cases. But sometimes it's go, going out and finding other defendants, people who are nearby, uh, or it's finding local governments. You know, the, so give an example from a specific case. You've got an accident on the road and a drunk motorcycle driver without a license crashes into the back of a parked vehicle and dies. And they go out and they say to the local government, you got to pay because you weren't doing a good job of supervising illegal parking on the road. Uh, remember, this is a, a drunk driver who dies because he crashed into the back of a, a vehicle. vehicle. But, <laughs> but it's the local government's fault in this case. Well, what's the basis for this? I mean, is it is there any kind of a legal basis for this, or is this just good old Chinese pragmatism? Is it rooted in in Chinese culture in some sort of pre-revolutionary idea of, of dispensation of justice, or, or where does this come from? So I guess I'm a little reluctant to appeal to culture as an explanation in a lot of these situations. I think there's pragmatism built in, and I think that in fact courts, when they're when they're adjudicating cases in China, are supposed to take account of issues like this. They're supposed to take account of equity. They're supposed to make sure that aggrieved individuals uh, get compensated. And so you could, you know, on the one hand, you could say this looks like they're violating legal provisions. On the other hand, they're doing maybe what they're supposed to do, which is to make sure that people who need compensation get compensation. It's sort of a social, you know, social safety net network on the cheap where you're making, finding some defendants who can pay for it. Uh, but I think courts who, who play this role are supposed to be playing this role and supposed to be adjudicating cases this way, even if it's not entirely consistent with what the written law says. There's some similarities, though, with uh, that in the U.S., where the people who are actually, uh, you know, defendants in lawsuits are the ones with the deep pockets. If you have a, a massive amount of injury, you know, tens of millions of dollars, you don't sue the the person who, who caused the damage but who has no money. You, you try to find some 
deep-pocketed company or individual who who also has some connection to what what occurred. So that might be the the plaintiff's lawyers as opposed to the government, but there's some similarities. Well, so let me just make two quick comments on that. One is a lot of these cases are brought without lawyers. Maybe 70% of the cases I looked at didn't have lawyers, although they often have somebody from their village helping them out uh, in court. The, the really striking thing about these cases, actually, I think, compared to the U.S., is how often litigants bring claims where they would not be brought in the U.S. because the defendant has no assets and no insurance, right? Defendant has no assets and no insurance in the U.S. You probably, I mean, you're a, lit- you're a litigator. I'm not, you're, you're probably not going to sue. But in China, they sue and they Don't sue. Don't worry, we'll find somebody uh, who does. Right? Yeah, we'll find. And, and I remember a lawyer in Hubei telling me, I said, he's, he said, why? I said, why is this? He got no, no chance of enforcement. He said, uh, first of all, he said, we're just more optimistic because the person who doesn't have any assets today might be rich tomorrow. Uh, uh, and then he said, but, you know, the, the and sometimes people just want to, you know, use the choju dog, wants to want to show far, right? Um, but uh, they want an explanation. We should unpack that. So choju dog was a Zhang Yimou movie, right? And then from the 19, late 90s? Early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah, 90s. Oh. I think 25 years old now. Oh, my God. It's a great, it's my, my favorite Gong Li movie, probably. She's just awesome. She plays this peasant woman whose husband is kicked in a very painful place by a village elder and then just goes on this long, endless series of, of just, just basically goes down the rabbit hole of the local, like, a village court system up to the county, up to the, right? it's an amazing, amazing movie actually. And and in the end, what she realizes is, well, she, gets, she she wins, right? They they detain the village head and she says, but I didn't want that. I just wanted, you know, I want to show off. I want an explanation. I want an apology. So what the legal system gives her is not what she wanted. But to bring it back to traffic accidents, uh, the, the third possibility in these cases is you go to court, you get an unenforceable judgment and the belief is the government's going to pay you. And so, why not do this? The, the other thing that I think is different in China is the role of insurance companies. I think courts just see insurance companies as arms of the state, as deep Yeah, pockets. we're going to get yeah. to that okay, one. But. Getting... Well, perhaps we could just go back a little. I'd like to just go back to the question of uh, how, how representative Hubei is uh, and also the, the, you know, the fact that plaintiffs so uh, commonly uh, receive compensation. I think in your data, the 336 cases won. Uh, plaintiffs received at least 50% of the amount sought in 256 cases. So that's more than 80% of the time. Um, Is that the same, do you think, elsewhere in the country? Um, And uh, is it the same in smaller provincial counties uh, versus first-tier cities? So I don't know, right, because I haven't done that. (laughs) And as a scholar, I'm not going to make claims that this is representative. This is a pretty – the place we were working is a pretty small county – town so it's you know which i guess in china means it's got like a million people but the uh the county seat uh it's actually a sh, so it's a municipal oh, so seat it's a but yeah. but it's one county underneath it so I, I don't think we can say that's that's the same i think that in beijing and shanghai you would see uh maybe a little more regularized adjudication of these cases and and i think you actually today would see a lot more uh, mediation of these cases. Uh, some of the bigger cities have put a lot of resources in to actually trying to resolve these cases before they go to court. Did, did you have a sense for how many were mediated before they went to court? No, we can't. It's you very can't, hard. I mean, can't, can't get that, we okay. can't get that information. So, I mean, as Jeremy was just saying, I mean, basically you, you have a really good shot if you bring a case of getting a pretty substantial payout. I mean, at least 50% of what you were asking for, 80% of the time, and almost all, like, what, it was like 336 cases, and all but three got paid. 
I mean, that's nuts. Okay, so now that seems like uh, maybe we can we can ask uh, some of Jeffrey here. Uh, that seems like a pretty perverse incentive uh, to bring cases, right? I mean, wouldn't that lead to maybe people faking accidents and jumping out in front of cars? Unheard of, of course, in China. Nobody would ever ever do that. But I mean, you know, of course, we all heard these cases, or if we've not actually seen people, you know, saunter out in front of a, a car. Uh, this is a, a time of widespread uh, surveillance of dash cams of, you know, pretty ubiquitous uh, traffic cams. Do people still do this? What's what's going on with that? Well, I think all of us who, who've bothered to check on YouTube, you can easily find these videos of, you know, case after case of somebody jumping in front of a car or not even getting hit by the car, but pretending to be hit or falling down or, or even getting in front of the car waiting to get hit. So, I mean, it certainly happens. I mean, the, they learn it from soccer players, right? <laughs> <laughs> that may be where they got it. Um, although it probably not the Chinese soccer team based on uh, performance so far. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly happens. I, I think that with dash cams becoming more and more common, uh, it'll probably uh, create an incentive to maybe stop doing that. Uh, but it's still happening now, as far as I know. So, Jeff, you know, one of the juicy questions we want to talk about tonight is the structure of compensation for, uh, mm-hmm. between injury versus death. Right. Uh, and at least in the past, it has created one of the phenomena that you wrote about, that is people deliberately driving over pedestrians they've hit to make sure that they are dead. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I just want to preface uh, what I say by by explaining what I mean by this, I'm not saying that in every accident or even a large majority or even a, a significant minority of cases this actually occurs. I'm saying it does occur. And it, it's just like school shootings in the U.S. If you say, if you have the impression that anytime you go to a school that someone's going to show up and start shooting kids, that's clearly wrong. But if you say that we don't have an epidemic of school shootings in the U.S. and it's different from other societies, that's wrong too. We, we certainly have this as a problem here. And it's a problem in China. Uh, it definitely occurs. There's a lot of uh, court cases. There's regular reports in the media. Um, People's Daily has reported on the phenomenon at least six different times in the last six years that I'm aware of. Uh, so it, it occurs. Now, the reason I've generally heard for why people will sometimes do this is because of the vast difference in compensation between uh, accidentally or, or causing somebody to die and the, the compensation you would pay out if somebody is uh, seriously crippled. Uh, there was a case not too long ago that got a lot of attention in China where the payout for the first 23 years of the person's injuries was uh, 400,000 U.S., the, obviously the equivalent of the renminbi. Um, while the typical payout in a case of causing death is about, you know, well, it, it's varied over time, but it might be 30, 40, 50,000, might be 70,000, something like that. So the, the difference is quite vast. And the payout is ongoing. So that was only up to the first 23 years of the person's uh, injuries. So uh, this is something that is frequently reported in China. Even uh, Ramin Jirbal, the, uh, People's Daily, they've, they've talked about this as a phenomenon. In 2011, in May, they did an editorial about how uh, it's a common saying among uh, professional drivers that it's better to hit to kill than to hit and injure, and it's because you might be stuck making these massive payouts for life. And Obviously, they argued that this was the wrong philosophy because if you're caught killing somebody, that's murder, and that's a lot worse than uh, accidentally uh, injuring someone. But you know, they're not going to make this editorial repeatedly across the years unless it's a, a real problem. Yeah, I mean, but what's the reason why so many of them get away with it? I don't understand. I mean, they 
you you pointed to several. In fact, almost every case that you named, the the person actually was just given really minor jail time or uh, only fined. Well, there there are cases where people have been convicted of murder okay. uh, for hitting uh, <laughs> repeatedly or for going back and killing. Uh, there was a case, um, a guy called Yao Jiaxin, who uh, went back and killed the person uh, intentionally. There was a, a case, um, Ying Hao Ma in Hebei, uh, who hit a person, uh, flipped, them, flipped the pedestrian into another lane of traffic, then he did a U-turn and came back and hit him again. Uh, so these cases are kind of obvious, uh, what the person was doing. Uh, the, the guy called Yao Jiaxin, uh, he hit the, the woman, then he came back and stabbed her to death, so it was clear what he was doing there. Uh, but these are cases where you can't really argue that the person's not doing it intentionally because, I mean, a U-turn. The guy actually did argue it was unintentional. He said that he wasn't sure what had happened, and he went back to see, and so he did the U-turn and came back, and then he hit him accidentally. Um, I was just trying to prod to see if she was awake, and I happened to have a sharp object to prod. So, so these uh, are obvious cases, but there's a lot of cases out there that seem very obvious that the person is doing it intentionally, and yet they were found to have done it uh, unintentionally. So there was an example, uh, Zheng Xiaocheng, uh, which was quite well-known, I guess. I, I think that was 2000. Just for the record, he has paper in front of him. He's not actually just for the podcast. He doesn't have the names of every... Every one of these well, murders. Well, <laughs> some people have, have uh, doubted whether these cases are true, so I, I wanted yeah. to be ready to... You're the, a good the lawyer. People, you the people the daily can write about it, but <laughs> if, if a white guy writes about it on, on Slate, that's no good, right? Well, the, uh, the Slate article I did was uh, I had links to videos because I knew that most people can't... You know, most people in America, they can't read Chinese. So uh, you can watch the video and you can decide for yourself if you think somebody driving over the same person five times is an accident or not. Um, it, but that's just the videos I was able to find. Uh, that's not every single reference out there because I didn't generally cite to or link to cases that are, are not on video. That, that was the point of that article. In fact, I'd known about this phenomenon for a long time, but I'd never written about it because I, I thought, well, how, how do you write about it when, uh, unless you have something to show people? Um, and it was actually a Chinese attorney who, who spoke to me and said, you should write about this. And I was like, all right, let me see what's out there. And when I found enough videos that I thought I could turn it into an article, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. You, you heard about this first, though, actually, when you were a student in Taiwan, right? I mean, just so that um, those of us from the mainland don't feel too put upon here. It actually happens, apparently, in Taiwan in the 90s. It, uh, that's surprising to me. Was that... Yeah, I'd, I'd heard about it a lot in Taiwan. I hadn't seen it firsthand, but, uh, you know, a, a guy who used to actually <laughs> teach with me at a a kindergarten. When I was teaching English for my visa while I was studying Chinese, and we would drive there together, and he was kind of a crazy driver. Uh, and he, he told me, oh, I'm going to do this if I ever hit somebody. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure they're dead because, you know, you'll pay out a lifetime of compensation. And, you know, maybe he was just trying to shock me, that, but that's what he said, and he claimed he meant it. Um, but... Uh, in I think it was 2003, Lianhe Bao, the the main uh, newspaper in Taiwan, at least at that time, uh, they they actually reported about this problem in Taiwan as well, uh, and that was again a major editorial in a major newspaper saying you, you we have this problem of uh, it's fake news. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's uh, people's daily, and you have court cases. The only question is how often does it happen where it's not uncovered. Uh, it certainly happens, at least in the cases where they've been convicted. It probably happens in a lot of these cases where they're not convicted, but where the person runs over the person 
five times and then says, I thought it was a, a trash can or I thought it was a, a, a garbage bag stuck to my wheel. That, that is on video. And the person was found not, not guilty. They, they, were found, they were convicted of negligence uh, for driving over a grandmother five or six times. And it's on video. Um, but then there's the other cases, which is, okay, what if it's not in video and, and, and you, nobody knows it happened? How many are those? Is, th is that a significant number or not? Uh, I would guess that the number of cases that are actually caught on video are a very, very small percentage of the number of the cases that actually occur. So this, it's a real phenomenon for sure in my mind. But even if you only accepted the cases that are, are known to have occurred that were convicted, it's still a re regular occurrence similar to you know, school shootings in the U.S. where it happens on a regular basis and it happens more frequently than in other countries. So related to this, and here's a question for both of you, is that famous reluctance to get involved when there's a traffic accident or really any kind of accident for fear that anyone involved will end up with some liability. Is this just an urban myth or is there some basis for it? I think everybody knows that's true. Uh, I, I'm not saying that nobody is willing to help. That's not the case. But I'm, I am saying that in general, there's a reluctance to get involved. And I think part of it is, uh, you know, the heavy attention that was paid to certain cases in the past where somebody supposedly, you know, there's a famous case of the, of the bus, right, where the, the woman claimed that she was bumped by this guy getting, you know, getting on and off the bus uh, and that he caused her injuries. And he said, no, I, I never even touched her. I saw she fell down and I took her to the hospital and I even paid her hospital entrance fee because, you know, I felt sorry for this old woman. And the judge said, well, no one would do that unless they had guilt. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and if you, if you weren't guilty, you would have asked for that money back, that, you know, whatever, 20, 20 renminbi entrance fee or whatever it was. Um, and so it, I think people see that and they say, oh, my gosh, I, I better not get involved because uh, that's happened in the past. I mean, it, I, I've heard people tell me uh, that, you know, they, they, they're concerned or they've seen this concern from other people of not getting involved. Uh, because they don't want to be accused. Can we uh, talk a little bit about uh, China's Good Samaritan laws, which, as I understand it, were designed to try and stop this kind of thing? And I think both of you have opinions on this that may differ if our earlier conversation, so I'd love to hear the different opinions. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let me just say one thing. Jeffrey and I have had this conversation on and off for a, a while. Uh, I, uh, we disagree a little bit about the claim that the practice Jeffrey discusses is widespread. In my own research, it never comes up. And uh, I don't doubt that this has happened sometimes, but I am skeptical that it is a widespread phenomenon in China. I just, I think that there are these sensational cases, but I don't think they speak to the reality of the you know, hundreds of thousands of traffic accident cases Well, it's believed year. to exist, thus the law, right? Yeah, but but I mean this is the but I but I also think he's right that that sometimes the social perception of of what happens can also influence how people behave. So you get a couple of these sensational cases like the one he's talking about with the bus, and that does affect people's behavior. The Good Samaritan law, I think, has no effect on this. Uh, Good Samaritan law, which just came into effect, I guess, in October, I think. Uh, basically addresses a very specific situation, which is whether or not you can be held liable if you engage in a negligent rescue, right? So you come to the scene of an accident and you 
help people. And what they're saying actually is even in the, it's actually quite an ex extraordinary law because it says that even if you are grossly negligent uh, in providing assistance uh, in the course of a rescue, you cannot be held liable. But it doesn't speak to whether or not you can be made liable for the original accident. And the situation that Jeffrey's talking about is that the situation where the somebody comes to the scene and helps and is not being made liable for a negligent rescue, for the negligent assistance, but for the actual original accident. And the, the Good Samaritan law doesn't speak to that at all. China also hasn't, uh, as far as I know, in any jurisdiction, maybe there may be some lo localities that are experimenting with this, has not imposed a legal duty to rescue, right? So uh, many European countries and the state of Vermont uh, impose a legal obligation to engage in a non-risky uh, rescue that is not risky to yourself. So China also hasn't mandated rescue in that situation. So I just, I just don't, I think the Good Samaritan Law was a way of saying, hey, we're trying to address this issue, but I don't think it actually addresses the issue. I actually agree with that. I mean, I think... Um I think it's a good step. It's good. Uh, it, yeah, that, that's a nice step. But the reality is I think people's concern is if I stop on the, the side of the road and help somebody who was hit by a previous car but is lying there now injured and nobody's helping them, that person's family may accuse me of having hit this person. And so it's not a matter of uh, they're going to sue me for, for helping this person in a way that did not actually re save their life or, or maybe when I bring the person to the hospital, they're suing me for how I carried the person or something. That's not the problem. The problem is I'm being accused of the, the actual injury. I'm being accused of having hit them. And so I, I don't think it's actually going to change uh, behavior. Can I, can I just add that I think that the phenomenon that Jeffrey's talking about and that I was talking about earlier are also, also related, right? The, the complaint I hear doing my research in Hubei is from people who talk about these cases not where they provided assistance and were held liable, but just where they were on the scene or a couple hundred yards away. And the police, you know, say somebody, you know, the, somebody must be liable and it must be, you know, even if you didn't collide with the motorcycle, the motorcycle must have seen you and you must have done something to throw them off balance that made them crash, even though there was no contact, there's no evidence of an accident. And we, that's what you hear drivers complaining about a lot is somebody's at the scene or near the scene, isn't involved in the accident, and they're made to pay usually because they have insurance. Again, the courts are focused on making deep pockets pay. And so I think maybe... The, the you know we can debate how common this is, but the phenomena are, are actually related, which is the courts are focused on ensuring that in a situation where somebody is killed or severely injured, somebody is there to pay. Uh, and, and they're not maybe as focused as th uh, we would expect them to be on who actually pays or the connection of the, of the person paying uh, to the actual incident, especially if the defendant has insurance. Ben, is this related then, um, you know, back on the subject of torts, uh, the strategy that insurance companies and traffic accident, uh, traffic accident torts have uh, tended to take, which is basically never settling cases, even if settling would actually reduce the payout? Why don't they settle? Yeah, this, is, this was the great puzzle. Coming at it from an American perspective, the thing I found strangest was that the insurance companies weren't settling. I mean, it's very routine in the U.S. and in other countries where there's fairly clear fault to settle, and you, you settle partially because you want to avoid a big jury verdict. Now, China's a bit different because the expected value of these cases is pretty clear because China has scheduled damages. So 
anyone with any experience is going to know exactly how much or pretty clearly how much is going to be paid out in these cases. But you might think that the insurance companies then would be willing to settle because they might save some money by settling and they'd save litigation costs. Well, litigation costs aren't that high in China, so I don't think they're that worried about the cost of an extended trial. Trial is, is Trials are very brief. But what emerged from my interviews, uh, in particular with, with insurance company officials and lawyers, was that they don't settle because they, insurance companies have a huge principal agent problem. They don't trust the local officials of the insurance companies to settle because they think there's going to be collusion. And they, so they just won't pay out unless there's actually an official government document, a court document ordering them to pay because they're worried that their local insurance agent's going to be doing some side deal with the plaintiff uh, and is going to be paying out when they shouldn't pay out. So it's just much easier and much cleaner for them to delay payment until there's a court judgment and then pay out whatever the court tells them to pay. So how does it work as an insurer? I mean, if I'm an insurer in the United States, I'm going to give lower pre- charge lower premiums uh, to people with good driving records. But in China, it seems that there's whether you, I mean, since you're going to pay irrespective of whether the person insured was at fault or wasn't at fault, right? So there's there seems to be a, a, a perverse set of incentives here. Yeah, and the, the insurance companies would say, although they would say this, that they don't make any money, this, that, that they're forced to provide this insurance by the government. They're just the, an arm of the state then. Yeah, and that they're, well, what they would say is, so the insurance, auto insurance in China is actually pretty complex in that it's divided into two halves. One is the mandatory half, right? To you, every driver, not every driver has insurance, but every driver is supposed to have insurance. And that covers you up to about 130,000 renminbi uh, in damages uh, in a single incident. And then there's commercial insurance where people who drive who have more money, more assets, or drive fancier cars buy insurance. And so the most of these cases involve the mandatory insurance, and the insurance companies say they're not making any money. It's a loss leader, but they can make money on the commercial insurance, the amounts that are in excess. And so I think the insurance companies sort of see this as something they're forced to provide, heavily regulated, but it's also a way of getting customers that they can sell them products where they make more money. Ben, you, you noted earlier that uh, most traffic cases that don't involve serious injury or death are mediated on the spot by the police. And in most cases, this isn't exactly voluntary because driver, drivers face the threat of having their vehicles impounded. What, what is behind this preference for on-the-spot mediation? I think they want the cases to go away. Right? Sort of clear their docket. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that they want cases to go away. The longer cases draw, uh, draw out, there are more risk of social unrest, of people being unhappy, of protest. Uh, I think that, that they want to show they're getting their, their jobs done, and the way they get their jobs done is by making the cases go away. So it's still harmony law, huh? Absolutely. That's basically what it is. So p- police are basically the ones who allocate fault in traffic accidents, right? Uh, you said so. So c- courts apparently don't deviate from the findings of the police investigators. Um, is this because they don't want to bother? They don't have the capacity to carry out their own court investigations? They don't want to undermine the authority of the cops. And if that's the case, is it still related to this sort of harmony law thing? So I think there are a couple of things here. One is police are pretty powerful actors in the Chinese system, and courts don't really want to uh, get into conflict with the police if they don't have to. But I think the more important reason we see this happening is the courts don't want responsibility, right? This is a, a great way of avoiding responsibility. Litigants are unhappy with your decision. You can just say to them, listen, uh, the police made the decision as to fault. It's, it's there. You got a problem with this. Go complain to the police. Don't complain to us. In a system in which there's a lot of petitioning uh, and sometimes unrest about cases, the, the, if, if the courts were actually to change, the courts have the power to 
to overturn or change the liability determination made by the police. But they basically never do that because if they did that, then they would have litigants blaming them for the outcome. So it's a, it's a, I mean, I think one of the defining characteristics of Chinese courts is a desire to, to avoid responsibility if they can. Uh, because they want the cases to go away and they don't want to be blamed the for it. The pa system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do the police typically um, assign faults in traffic cases? I mean, let's say if there was an accident involving two drivers where one is severely in, injured or, or, or died, um, what do we know of how the police make their decision? So I think that it is increasingly based on evidence collection and... Uh, some reliance on, on you know, scientific uh, evidence collection. But I think a lot of it comes down to what the individual officers who report to the scene actually see and what they report. And certainly when you talk to lawyers and to uh, people involved in these cases, they would say that in many cases, the police will go out of their way to assign responsibility to the party who is the not, driving the nicer car or nicer car or less <laughs> severely injured those two things right okay. that, that so there's some uh, formula that, that, that factors in degree of injury absolutely blue book value of the car <laughs> right away. we tried hard to get we, we tried to find a data we have the license plate number of, of all these accidents but we couldn't figure out a way to find out what kind of car ah, it was that would have been, we really wanted to be interesting, know. interesting. Uh, the, the other thing that goes on in, in uh, these cases so I think the 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 police are trying to figure out a way to make the cases go away. So the other thing the police do in a lot of these cases, so a lot of the case, a lot of these cases are cases in which a drunk driver kills themselves. Uh, and the police in a lot of these cases find a way to assign like 30% of liability to some other party so that the deceased uh, driver's family gets some money. And the reason they do that is that China operates with a form of strict liability, meaning liability without fault, up until the limit of mandatory insurance. So that, that so <laughs> conveniently, that, right? So that up to the 130,000 RMB cutoff, even if you're only 30% responsible, you're going to pay 100% of those damages, right? Uh, they don't they don't apportion damages based on the percentage of fault in those cases. So there's a big interest on the police, uh, especially if they think there's insurance involved, to find some liability on somebody because that's going to ensure a maximum payout to the victim or the victim survivors. Ben, if I remember correctly, in your paper you talked about, or in the chapter of the book, you talked about how courts technically can go against the police uh, investigation finding, and they do in, on so, in some cases, but every instance of that, they side with the plaintiff. They, they actually... Uh, find in favor, uh, you know, sort of more favorably to the plaintiff. Yeah, they never overturn the uh, police finding directly, at least in the cases they I've seen. Adjust the, but the, they might find ways to add in a little bit more liability. So, for example, the police don't make determinations on things like emotional damages. They just say who was responsible for the accident. But the but the uh, court might look at the case and think, well, this case really deserves emotional damages. In fact, in China, emotional damages really serve as a substitute for punitive damages because one of the big factors involving emotional dam how much they pay out in emotional damages is actually the wrongfulness of the defendant's conduct. So, and and similarly, they'll sometimes bring in other parties at this stage who weren't involved in the actual accident, like the road safety office, and and impose liability that way. Right. 
So, Ben, theoretically, at least, tort law here in the United States expands as you have more and more uh, example cases that don't fit, uh, if I understand it right. But with the way it's handled in China, it seems that it becomes difficult to create law then in a way that's responsive to the needs of a changing society. Is that a correct reading, and is this a problem for China? So I, I don't know if I'd completely agree with that. I think that you actually see a lot of experimentation and sort of the slow development of legal rules so that, especially in the period I was studying, there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly how to adjudicate these cases. And I think if you look at it five years later, not all the areas of uncertainty have gone away, but a lot have. So if you look at things like, what do you do if you've got three victims, uh, each with their own claims, and one person sues first? I mean, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Are you supposed to just pay out the full amount of money? Or are you supposed to bring the three parties together in a case that the courts over time do come up with rules through experimentation that I think do clarify the law uh, as they would in other jurisdictions. Uh, you, you in your paper, Ben, you raised some really interesting uh, point uh, that China's general principles of the civil law and the tort liability law both uh, actually uh, provide an explicit basis for courts to take account of equitable considerations in deciding cases uh, where you, you have a defendant who is not at fault. But for some reason, the courts you looked at just simply never cite that reason. The, the, the person who is not at fault nevertheless pays. I, I actually was in a traffic accident in like my second year of college where I was on a perfectly black road af well after sundown driving under the speed limit and literally a woman who's like 80 years old literally wearing black uh, crossed a highway and I hit her and of course uh, you know she, her, her her lawyer brought a, a suit and the judge listened for about five minutes and then just dismissed it just we moved for a, a directed verdict and and then the poor old woman had to pay uh, I didn't you know there this was not no, in China right? not in China okay. this is in the United <laughs> States and then this wouldn't have happened to me in China right you would have paid right right, yeah. right. Uh, why do they ignore this law? Again, I mean, is it the same answer as, as all the answers have been just for social harmony? So, so the law that you're referencing is a provision that basically says in a situation in which neither party is liable, courts may assign damages based on considerations of fairness. Uh, basically saying, giving courts the, the power to impose damages in a situation where neither party is at fault based on fairness. Courts in practice do this all the time, but they never cite to this provision of the law. And I think it's, I mean, I don't have a clear answer to why this is. I think there's some discomfort with this provision. It's sort of not something that exists in other legal systems. And the courts don't, uh, some judges I've talked to don't think it's a great provision. But in practice, they're doing it all the time. And so it's actually a great puzzle uh, out there for, for any of the law students listening who want to go do a little research on, on a specific area of Chinese law. I think it's, it's a great puzzle no one's answered. But I think there's this mixture of wanting to do the right thing, which I think does require them to consider equity, to consider fairness in adjudicating these cases, but also maybe not wanting to cite to the exact provision of the law that would authorize them to do this. Maybe because they're concerned that if they did it, they would give litigants a reason to appeal or to object to their reasoning. Um, Jeff, I mean, this is a very different mindset when it comes to adjudicating torts, if you compare, of course, the United States and most uh, Western countries. What can we extrapolate from torts in our thinking more broadly about the role of courts in Chinese society? Well, 
One of the things I was thinking about while uh, Ben was was talking was just if you look at the Supreme Court, well, not even this, just the Supreme Court. If you look at any decisions in in China, um, you look at the their database. Uh, those cases very they, they make very few references to uh, you know statutes or precedents or anything. They'll, they might make some reference at the end. Here's the statutes we're we're following. They might do that. Uh, but in, if you look at a U.S. case, it's just layered all the way through with all these precedents that they're citing for every little thing. Uh, they'll they'll do string sites of cases that have held the same way. Um, it's just a completely different system. So when when Ben was mentioning about how they they don't cite to these cases, I'm just thinking that it it's kind of uh, an overall phenomenon in in China that they generally don't cite to. Uh, cases in the past where they don't cite the statutes as much as we do in the U.S. Um, and it's quite striking that they don't. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. have the guiding cases, for example, but at least maybe Ben's seen it and I haven't because I, I know you've looked at a ton of cases, but I haven't seen uh, cases that cite to the guiding cases yet. Have, have you? So the guiding cases are not being cited widely at all? I, I mean, aren't they supposed to be guiding? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, there's these cases that come down from the Supreme Court that are supposed to be exemplars, and yet I, I have not yet, maybe you've seen uh, some cases, but I have not seen uh, cases where they're actually citing to some, these Some, but it's a very small number. But that doesn't mean that judges aren't looking at precedent. Judges in China are going online all the time looking up cases. Uh, they're just not citing to them. So in practice, judges go online all the time. They got a new issue. They want to know what the range of damages is. They want to know how, what the sentencing range is. They use these databases all the time. The, they're as we said, there are tens of millions of cases now available online, and judges use them and lawyers use them all the time. We just don't see that manifest in the in the way decisions are written. That's not China's not the only civil law country that doesn't re- rely a lot on citations. But I think that we're seeing increased use of precedent in practice in China, even if they're not acknowledging it. The other thing that strikes me about some of the decisions uh, is that it's a very different form of writing the decision than in the, the U.S. It's for one thing, it's repetitive. They'll say, this is what the plaintiff says, and they'll say it. And then this is what the defendant says, and they'll say something slightly different. And then this is what the witness says, witness B, witness C. And it's like, oh, my God, I've read this five times. And then this is what we think happened. And then you've read it like six times now with very small variations in it uh, throughout the the case. But sometimes what you do see is, is, which seems to be different than U.S. cases. In in the U.S., I feel like judges often want to protect their decision from being reversed on appeal. So they will try to write it in a way that's harder to uh, be be attacked, I guess, on appeal. In China, I don't see that kind of phenomenon. They often will put forward information about the case that, uh, for me, reading it as an outsider, it, it seems quite shocking. Uh, and then they disagree with that uh what, what was just said. So I'll, I'll give a couple examples so that this isn't so so vague. Uh, there was a couple cases I've read, for example, where uh, the defendant says, I'm not the real criminal. Uh, I was hired to, to pretend to be the criminal in place of this other person. Uh, and the, he, he gives all this these reasons why that's true. And then the other guy says, no, it's not. And then the judge is like, well, I, he, he confessed to it earlier, so that's enough for me. And, and then they, they, they've convict the guy. Um, and I'm looking at the, the information that the defendant gave forward about why he's not the real criminal. And I'm like, seems pretty solid. Um, and that's just one example. You, you see that a number of times where you're looking at the case and the, the verdict 
or the decision doesn't seem to match some of the evidence that was presented earlier. Well, we'll put a link to that that story that you did about body doubles, about people sort of standing in for one another, which was from a few years ago. Uh, last question to the both of you. Uh, it's sort of a combination. <laughs> so we've kind of established here that harmony justice, as it were, uh, it's something of an impediment, really, to, to the development of rule of law as we understand it. Is this something that Chinese legal scholars and activists are either aware of or interested in, in, in understanding further and in pursuing or in rectifying in your experience? Ben, why don't you start? And then Jeff. So I, I think there's uh, increased realization amongst academic circles in China the need for empirical research. So the step one before you can get to the question is, we need to know more about what's going on. And uh, that there hasn't been a sort of long tradition of empirical research on the Chinese legal system, and that's now starting to happen. So before we even get to the question of whether it's an impediment, I think we've got to try and figure out what's going on. Uh, I think that, that uh, there is a divide within the Chinese academic world on this point. And there are scholars who think that when judges don't follow the law because of concerns about equity or because of concerns about fairness— that's a problem and that they, you know, they should have strict application of the law. But there's also a pretty strong tradition of scholars in China who say, you know, the role of a judge in China is to, to come up with a So people within that tradition very decision, much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that a judge is, not, is a flexible problem solver. And this goes back to Ma Xiwu and, you know, Yan and, and uh, before the revolution, that sort of the role of the judge is to solve problems for society. And if these judges... Whether it's you know whether it's a tort case where they're you know ordering compensation by a deep-pocketed person or not making a defendant who doesn't have any money pay the assets or whether it's a criminal case where they basically agree to reduce the sentence because the defendant has paid cash to the to the victim, that's fine because they're helping the problem go away and they're making sure that aggrieved individuals get compensation and that's the role judges should pay. So I I think I would say that there's no clear. Uh, there's no, there's not one strain of of Chinese academia that's dominant. I think there are different opinions here, but there's there is a recognition increasingly that you, know, you need to look at what's actually going on in rural China. What's going on in rural China may not always be the same either of as what's written in the textbooks or as what we see in the big cities in Beijing and Shanghai. And Jeffrey, your sense of this? I'm of the view that. Uh, China can rule itself however it likes. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of Chinese law from uh, the West about how, how it should be compared to the standards in the U.S., but my view is that that's wrongheaded. This is um, why the Ministry of Culture named you a young legal scholar. <laughs> well, I, I really do think that it, China, it's up to China what they want to do with their, their laws, and if they want to have a system where they, they look to what they think is social harmony, that's their choice. It's not my choice. Um, and, you know, a lot of these criticisms that you see on a regular basis from the West about, oh, China should have a jury system or China should have, uh, you know, fewer death penalty cases or China should have this or that. I mean, it, China China can decide for itself what it wants to do. And I, I fully believe that uh, China can decide how it wants to run its own uh a country and its own legal system. How many terms their president should serve, right? <laughs> right. Oh, anyway, on that note, uh, Jeffrey Sant and Ben Liebman, a uh, fascinating conversation. We are really grateful that we could talk about this with you guys. Uh, before we, we, we go here, uh, let's make some recommendations. And before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that Q Music, the Seneca podcast, is powered by SubChina. Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter. Sign up for all manner of discounts and goodies with our SubChina Access program. And, of course, follow us on Facebook and at 
Twitter where our handle is at SupChinaNews. And leave us a review on iTunes. It's a great way to show your support and help others to discover Seneca. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off, man. We have Certainly, us. sir. Uh, if you're on Twitter, there's a fellow who goes by the name Tong Bingxue in pinyin, T-O-N-G-B-I-N-G-X-U-E. Uh, and he has this amazing Twitter feed of old photos of China, many of them from uh, the early 1900s and even earlier, uh, uh, video wow. and stills, some of them with sound. Um, and if you kind of like Chinese history, it's a, a fun thing to do on Twitter to helps me not tear my hair out when I read the rest of the news on a daily <laughs> basis. <laughs> You've got a lot of hair, Jeremy. It's okay. You can not as much as I used to. <laughs> Uh, Jeffrey, why don't you go next? Sure. Uh, so I was just using this today. So I'll, I'll, my recommendation will be uh, a book, uh, Persuasive Business Proposals. Um, and this is quite <laughs> selfish because uh, it's my, my father's book. But I always <laughs> use this for writing pitches and writing uh, proposals when you're trying to get business. Because uh, most people don't know how to write uh, something that persuades somebody to hire you. And as an a law firm partner, I'm always needing to convince people to hire me to handle their uh, legal cases. And Did he I, persuade I you to make this recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> subtly, subtly. So. All right. That's Kaiser. awesome. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, your, your father's name is? Oh, Tom Sant. Tom Sant. Okay, all right. Ben Liebman, what do you have for us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat and do two. Okay, uh, good. We I don't know two. why traffic accidents makes me think of noodles. But uh, oh, but uh, as we're sitting here, I'm just thinking of the hand-pulled noodle. Who would have known you could find Xinjiang noodles at 148th and Broadway, uh, oh, wow. proving that uptown there is some food to, to eat. Uh, but on, on traffic accidents, you know, the, what traffic accidents is, this whole discussion makes me think of is lack of trust. I mean, so much of this is about lack yeah. of trust. And, you know, the question is, how do you build trust? And I don't have an answer to how you build trust in a society where trust is lacking. But when I think about where does this lack of trust come from, I think about Yuhua's China in 10 Words, which probably came out, yeah, I don't know, 10 no, years ago? Yeah, no. yeah, Yuhua's 10, yeah, I, we, we're familiar with the book. Not a fan, but hey, yeah. each to his own. Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. So what the name of this, the Xinjiang place? Which is, uh, the Hand-Pulled Noodle. The Hand-Pulled Noodle, all right. Yeah. Hopefully we can agree on that one. I can agree on that, absolutely. Uh, it's got carbs and fat and delicious stuff. Anyway, uh, I am going to recommend an excellent piece on the Macro Polo site by Evan Feigenbaum, who is vice chair of the Paulson Institute. Uh, it's titled A Chinese Puzzle. I didn't like that part of the title. Why economic reform in seas China has more meaning than market liberalization, uh, which I will henceforth insist that anyone wishing to discuss with me the topic of reform in China must first read and then agree that it will thereafter constitute the definitional framework for the discussion to ensue because it's really, really good. It just lays out very clearly what does reform mean, economic reform mean in the Chinese context. When when Liu He talks about reform, is he only talking about market liberalization? No, he's talking about some other things. And Evan makes it very clear what these are. So very useful article, a very, very good article. Uh, big fan of, of, of Evan Feigenbaum and of the site Macro Polo. They've got just some terrific writers. Denny McMahon from the Wall Street Journal has just recently joined them. And, uh, of course, Matt Sheehan is writing some great stuff over there. So Jeffrey and Ben, thanks once again. Uh, we look forward to talking to both of you again soon. And, Ben, uh, we are looking forward to the book if it ever comes out, or to your, your analysis of 51 million legal cases in China um, using an AI robot. Uh, so let's hear a round, first of all, of applause of thanks for our gracious hosts at Dorsey and Whitney. 
and for our terrific guests. Thank you guys for coming. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.